tonight on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. I'm going to see how far I can get into a really insane amount of questions in our part two, the week in IndyCar listener Q&A extravaganza. Wow. So we did part one and usually it's an equal split between the type of questions, the amount of questions we get in part one, part two. Well, uh, y'all sent in a whole bunch of additional questions. Normally after we kind of cut things off, my pal Tim Falkowitz, who puts together the questions for me each week. And I said, hey, it looks like some more have come in. Can we do another quick sweep? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we would be doing this. How's this? The results of our presidential election uh, will likely be in before we would get to finish part two here if we did every single question. So I'm going to try and do this. I have about an hour tonight, and there's no way I'm going to get to everything, but I'm going to try something new, and we'll just use it as a reference. This is going to be a shotgun episode. So unless there's something where I'm staring at the question going, wow, we really got to dive into this, I'm going to do my best to just charge through, uh, fire through, whatever through, shotgun approach, as many as I can get through, and then I'm probably going to have to pick back up tomorrow-ish, Friday, and post as much as I can and get it out the door. So thank you again for all the amount of questions and just the quality of the questions, the, the variety. Oh, boy, really fun stuff. Last quick thing, as always, we say not only thank you to you for powering the show, but to torontomotorsports.com being just great friends looking after us and all kinds of ways. There's plenty of, of MP podcast, Week in IndyCar, Week in Sports Cars, Robin Miller 2020. Probably need to update that for 2021 too. Um, all kinds of silly stuff, uh, T-shirts and mugs and stickers there, torontomotorsports.com. Check them out. Bell Racing Helmets USA, they have been with us since, what, I think almost uh, our first round when we started doing sponsors in 2017. So great friends, great, great people there who look after us, sport, keeping our heads safe and also, you know, supporting everything we do because they're good people and love y'all. And then finally, we super, super appreciate everything that the Justice Brothers do for us and have done amazing automotive chemicals and lubricants and finally finally cooper tires right they make the road to indy go and stop and turn and they make so many things happen for so many of us in the sport they sponsor lots of things that make little media endeavors like this other things in the road to indy bull riding you name it they do a lot of really good things and so uh super thankful to them for being our first sponsor and our most enduring partner. So, endurance. Let's see how fast we can go, how long we can last. We're going to start off with Joshua Barrett. This is not a question, not strictly any car. What am I going to ask you here? I just want to congratulate Bryce Aaron on completing a season in the UK with a podium finish in the Walter Hayes Trophy for the Team USA Scholarship, one to watch in the future. That for sure Joshua, and thanks for opening with that. Been a huge supporter, lover of Jeremy Shaw and his Team USA scholarship, taking talented young Americans, taking them across the pond, 
compete in the UK in Formula Fords, this Walter Hayes trophy, it's it's big. It's seriously big and has been forever. I'm old enough to have remembered when this was formed and announced, and Jimmy Vassar was the very first to go over and do this. Also want to give a shout-out to IndyCar reporter on NBC, that being Kevin Lee, his son Jackson, not Jordan, as one of uh, Racer's editors wrote in a social media post, uh, along with Bryce and the good work that he did over there on behalf of representing the USA. Also, fine, fine work by Kevin's son, Jackson. Mike Jablo, quick follow-up here. says, I noticed that Bryce Aaron, Team USA Formula 4 driver who finished on the podium via Walter Hayes Trophy <clears throat> this past weekend, had a Chip Ganassi racing patch on his driver's suit. Do you know what the relationship is between Bryce and CGR? I do. And it is the same between many drivers over many years, uh, between themselves, Team USA and CGR, as well as Racer Magazine, as well as a bunch of other standard supporters. Brian Herta, um, these are folks who contribute money to make this possible. So <laughs> the, uh, the cars are not free. Uh, a team is paid to run them. Uh, Cliff Dempsey, I believe, has been the one doing this for quite some time for Jeremy. And so, yeah, uh, the two Formula Fords that are used in testing and then in the variety of races done during the uh, Team USA annual trek over to the UK all cost money. And so Chip Ganassi Racing and a whole litany of sponsors. You might check out the Team USA Scholarship website for those of you who just want to learn a little bit more about it. It's alumni. I mean, it's everybody. Uh, it's Jerry Hildebrand, it's Joseph Newgarden, it's Connor Daly, it's just keep going back. Brian Herta, um, <clears throat> on and on and on and on. So really cool stuff, and I don't know if there's a donate uh, link there. Maybe there is, but if there is and you're wanting to do something cool to help seed uh, future American open-wheel talent, well, Jeremy's, uh, as I've long referred to him, the patron saint of American junior open-wheel racing. So Give him a look, give him some love, and yeah, Mike, it's uh, just Chip and the team. Mike Hole, also integral as well, just putting money behind this because uh, they do support talent. Uh, John Hollinger, you say, any follow-up on the Freedom 100 decision? Did you get a chance to read the article about it and the quotes from Penske? Uh, You say, I've never seen him so publicly pissed off. Got a lot of other folks uh, asking the same thing or similar. Uh, Tim Falkowitz, our question man. Trying to see. Okay, so some questions about will he be using some of his sports car team on, on Indy Lights team? Not that I know about Tim. Um, Paul Trahan last week USA Today had an interview with Roger. The, from the interview, it sounded like he no longer had an interest in helping Anderson Promotions with Indy Lights. Um, do you think he might form his own feeder series? Also, kind words, Paul, from my wife and I on recovering uh, from ver- various things. Uh, Steve Grinstead um, asking about this as well. Oh, boy. Uh, I'll get to your last question here in uh, just a moment. Yeah, haven't had a chance to speak with Roger. Had hoped to get home in time today to speak with him about a couple of things and did not. So going to try and give him a ring tomorrow to catch up and get a little more direction there. There's a, a strange dynamic that I haven't figured out. This isn't accusational. Knowing that IndyCar, which owned and started the infinity pro series and what was it 2002 as its version of indie lights 
knowing that in the early 2010s, there were multiple efforts to come up with a new chassis, freshen, modernize things. The old IPS chassis, Delara, uh, was just, man, it was long in the tooth. It had been around for 10 years, 12 years, 13 years, whatever it was. There are multiple efforts by IndyCar to search for vendors, thought that there was going to be funding behind it from the Holman George side. That ultimately went away, and there, despite being a lot of effort, was essentially a choice made saying, okay, uh, this needs to go somewhere and take off and, and rejuvenate, but we can't. So what can we do with this property that we own? And a deal was struck with Dan Anderson, uh, Anderson Promotions, his daughter, Michelle Kish. The two of them uh, run that organization. They took it over. Um, We now have this three-tier ladder road to Indy, USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000, Indy Lights. And it's been entrusted to the Andersons. You can say positives. You can say negatives, whatever it is. I can just tell you, without the Andersons, we would have no junior open wheel ladder, period. End of statement. Uh, Mazda, huge supporter of this, put a ton of money behind it. Now we have a situation where there's new people who've bought the thing that we love in IndyCar and IMS, and noting that there's been a problem with car counts, uh, there was some pretty awesome stuff Roger was saying he wanted to do to try and help fix things, where things seem to get a little bit awkward and undefined, and I'm again, I'm hoping to find out what's going on. There seems to be a bit of a power play. I think from a licensing standpoint, IndyCar maybe holds the cards here to be able to say, well, this Indy Lights thing is ours. Uh, The rest of it is not, but Indy Lights specifically is the thing that the Andersons have taken on at the behest of uh, IndyCar many years ago. What do you do if the new owners either don't like you, don't think your vision on what you should do is correct, uh, don't like when you call them out for making a bad decision about pulling the freedom 100 off the calendar. What do you do? So I don't have answers to all this. As I think I mentioned on the last show, who knows, maybe even the one before I read RP's quotes with a certain governmental leader voice playing in my head because it just did not. I mean, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, dictatorial? Is that a word to use? I don't know. But it just did not come across as something that uh, is the norm for RP. And I've heard him go off. He's gone off on me before. And this was beyond that. So that's the thing that surprised me. I I hadn't seen this flavor, this shade. So I just want to understand it. I don't know if he's going to want to talk about it. I don't know if he'll take my call. Who knows? But I'm going to try and find out. Uh, the question, Tim, about crew, uh, that'll be in a story here shortly. Uh, don't foresee anything on the Indy Lights side, at least. Thing about the feeder series of his own that Paul asked about, that's where, that's where my fears head. And that is Honda, Honda Performance Development specifically, makes the engines happen over on the SCCA Pro side. Uh, with the SVRA sanctioning that and running that with their weekends now 
with the, uh, I'm just going to call them USF4 and USF3. I know that they have different names, but in my brain, F4 and F3 are just the simplest way to describe things. Honda is behind the motors and both. They are behind the series heavily. They have a scholarship now, which we're going to see with uh, Linus Lundqvist coming to Indy Lights next season, which is amazing. This is something that we cannot overlook, and it's well spotted here, Paul. There are two manufacturers in IndyCar, Chevrolet and Honda. One of those two is very active in junior open wheel racing in the USA. Whether it's fortunately or unfortunately, it's in the smaller, lesser known, less developed ladder. That being what started full roots in the SCCA and has since been taken on by um, Tony Perella and his SVRA group, his, just his motorsports group that also has Trans Am and some other really cool stuff too. It's rising, growing. It's just not really heavily recognized, at least among IndyCar teams. Uh, what happens when you have two manufacturers deeply committed to IndyCar? One of them is entrenched in a junior open wheel ladder series that isn't the favored one by IndyCar but they sure as heck want it. Well, it makes me think that might be something that puts a USF 2000 and a Indy Pro 2000 in jeopardy. Uh, The strict and specifically owned uh, Anderson promotion series. Could we see a F4, F3 Indy lights ladder at some point in time in the future, all arranged by RP with lots of encouragement and support for, behind it from honda i mean i wouldn't be the 10th or probably the hundredth person to suggest such a thing paul but that's where i'm hoping things don't go so in this shotgun approach today i'm gonna cut things off right there on this topic and just say that we can dive into it more deeply here sometime in the near future but uh my greatest hope is for rp anderson promotions And most of all, the team owners at all three levels of the road to Indy who have spent vast sums to be there, to create a ladder, right? IndyCar isn't paying for those teams to be there. Anderson Promotion isn't paying for those teams to be there. They're there as small businesses. They are there investing in cars and people, keeping people employed, doing all kinds of things. It's just like the IndyCar series. Team owners decide to go, you got nothing. Well, this what appears to be a bit of a pissing match between a couple of leaders here. Uh, I just really hope for the team owner's sake and the mechanics and engineers, truck drivers, uh, driver, race car, young race car drivers, this gets resolved without blowing up a pretty awesome and fully functioning ladder as it is. Is there a way to rope in? what Honda's doing and incorporate those cars some, I don't know, but I know that, uh, I don't like the direction that I see things heading. Uh, the last question here, and it's not about any of the road to Indy stuff, but this does, uh, come from Steve Grinstead. Uh, as for your request for a guest, how about Eddie Jones? Think he'd do one last interview. Um, I placed that request earlier today, Steve, and that was, before I read your question and saw. So great question. Uh, I am told that young Eddie 
I hate to admit I missed the fact that he officially retired. Um, he's back in Ireland. So uh, I hope he will. And I don't know if he will, but the request was placed and he would have been asleep by the time that email got sent. So hopefully so. Uh, you'll certainly know about it if he says yes. Uh, you also say, last question, not asking you to break any embargoes, but will there be any more team driver sponsor announcements this year? Are you crazy, Steve? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. Many, 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 many. Uh, there are a lot of things that are not solved. I spent some time today on the phone with a driver who uh, will very likely be in the series next year. That, well, strong likelihood that driver will be in the series next year and was looking for some insights on who has what and who might do what and who they should speak with. And so trying to point that person in a good direction or two and so they have a a pretty good couple of new contacts to work and yeah i mean there's lots going on steve there really is uh, and there's going to be more so uh we're going to go to dan rice both soon to be ex Haas formula one drivers have been linked to possible moose indycar with romain Groschon saying he's even been in talks with teams on a scale of indycar will race in indianapolis next season to for stopping in Hamilton, team up at Haas F1 next year. How likely is it we will see one or both of the uh, K-Mag and Groschon uh, duo in IndyCar, even if it's a partial season? Uh, Jordan Darwin, you also uh, ask a similar question. Uh, and in yours, you say, oh, who would get displaced for them if they were to come over to IndyCar? I don't know of any displacement at the moment. I have only heard in terms of traction and momentum and i mean real traction and momentum not theoretical yeah hey we had a call and they said would you like to yeah maybe if i could and, you know i'm talking real like all right let's have some real talks uh romain would be the only one that i've heard of on this subject so far and i have done a little bit of digging so i'm not saying kevin hasn't i'm just saying of what i've been able to get it's only told me that romain has made a little bit of headway here um here's a nugget that I've been told by someone who's normally very smart and knows things, uh, and for those things to be accurate. I'm told that Romain's manager has reached out and sought help from a certain manager who specializes in IndyCar by the name of Stefan Johansson. So knowing that Stefan looks after, what is that guy's name? Dick's on? I don't know. Uh, I heard some some old New Zealander guy. Um, I think a younger Swedish guy, Felix some, such and such. Uh, anyways, uh, this Johansson guy um, apparently is assisting Romain's manager in trying to find him a home. I know of one of the teams that he has spoken with. I may or may not have helped with some contact requests. Uh, again, none of that is has anything to do with me. It's just in my role, in a reporter's role, you talk with everybody. It's not strange for someone to say, oh, hey, I'd like to get a hold of this guy that I don't know. Would the guy in a job where you talk to lots of people know how to do it? And so, anyways, uh, I'm aware of Romain having serious conversation with one team. I can't tell you about others because I don't know about others. 
And it wouldn't be right for me to say which team because that wasn't part of any of that. So, yeah. Uh, if he brings money, then he will drive IndyCar. If he does not bring money, he will not drive IndyCar. Same with Kevin Magnuson. I know of no teams. Uh, let me just run through things visually here before I make too much of a hard commitment to that and uh, end up proving myself to be totally uh, wrong. But I can think of no team at the moment that I'm looking through Foyt and Freddy, Errol McLaren SP, Carlin, Chip Ganassi Racing, Dale Coyne, Ed Carpenter, Meyer Shank, uh, Ray Hall Letterman, T. Penske. I can think of none that is in a position ready or just going to pay anyone to drive for them full-time in 2021. So of all the remaining seats, they are pay-to-play uh, in some way, shape, or form if we're talking full-time. All right. Uh, so, again, that applies to Kevin. That applies to Romain. That applies to freaking everybody, basically. Uh, where do we go? Hire Lee. As I write this, Antonio Felix DaCosta is making his testing debut with Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan racing. How big of a mountain does he have to climb? Uh, you've mentioned center pressure, ballast, damping, steering alignment, gearing, but what would be the most important tool for the driver to get used uh, to get comfortable with the car? And what about the engineer? What is his greatest tool? Says I know each driver likes the car set up differently, just looking for a general answer. Uh, I mean, obviously, if he can do some simulator time, that's going to be very helpful at a place like Barber, where he tested higher. So if this were the Indy road course, it'd be nice to do a serious uh, simulator. But even just doing it at home in an iRacing capacity and whatever, eh, it's not the hardest place to figure out. There's not a lot of corners that you would consider crazy high-risk um slash reward there are some obviously but it's just that's not that place barbara on the other hand holy cow it is one of <laughs> it is all risk reward seemingly you can find time everywhere by pushing harder but you get it wrong and you have broken car in half so i would say that any simulator time that he got beforehand would be amazing but if we're talking about just getting in and getting comfortable with the car it just time and lapse. I know it's a really generic answer, but he would have a pretty good idea of what a fast open wheel car feels like. Antonio is super experienced, super high quality guy. So it's not like he's going to be just kind of dipping his toe in the throttle a little bit and feeling, I mean, he knows speed. So this would just be a case of hopefully doing some sim time. I would have to imagine he watched lots of in-car video from Graham, from Takuma, from whomever, and was able to know before he went out that, hey, going into turn one, which is crazy, there are braking markers on the right, and this is about the place where people are doing their braking. So I'll back that up. You know, if folks are braking at the 200-foot marker, I'll start off by, who knows, maybe the 400, maybe the 300, whatever. But I know where I need to go in most places. I've watched and listened from the in-car to hear how folks are applying throttle, how hard, uh, where they're braking and such. I've looked at data to get a good idea of these things as well, brake forces and such, how hard. 
these are things that a guy like uh, Antonio would be able to parse out pretty quickly due to his experience. And I mean, other than bolting on, granted, they already bolt on basically max downforce, but uh, other than making the car just glued to the ground and comfy to drive in that regard to start and probably making sure you dial in uh, enough oversteer so that he's not dealing with, did I say oversteer or understeer? I don't remember. Dialing in understeer uh, compared to oversteer, I think that's pretty much the standard practice. Give him five laps, ten laps to try and figure the place out, reconcile it with his head a little bit, send him out for another session, and let him not only get more comfortable but work closer to those margins. You know, if you're breaking at the two-and-a-half marker in turn one, that becomes two-and-a-quarter, then becomes the two-marker. Um, work towards things. The best thing that will have happened for him was to get out of the car at lunch and go and sit and let it all soak in because every driver will tell you the preference is a two-day test at a new place with a new car with new everything. You go and do it the first day. It's drinking from the proverbial fire hose. You climb out. You go have dinner. You go to bed. You wake up the next morning, and it all feels normal. Um, He would have had an hour, basically, to do that during lunch, so not nearly enough time. But I think it would have just given him the ability to let things soak in, ask some questions of the team, and then get back to uh, hopefully providing some good setup info for them. And, yeah, the guy was, what, middle of the field? which is freaking amazing, and but also not totally surprising for a guy of his caliber. Just amazing from a standpoint of, I don't know if it, most people knew who he was or why to have a any kind of expectation for him. Pal, Andy Merrick also has a question about Felix. Um, how's it, how do IndyCar tests work? When someone like a DaCosta or an Indy Lice driver, someone else sits uh, sits in for one, what's the general program they run through? What broad criteria in addition to time might a team use to evaluate them? You know, the uh, with something like this, Andy, answered a lot of that uh, with uh, the question from higher, but with something like this, they're looking for speed and feel. What kind of speed can the driver generate? And I'd say for what Antonio did, it it should have left everybody just over the moon. So with that box ticked, you're looking for feel. What are they feeling with the car and telling you? What are they picking up? And for really good engineers, they can make changes where they know exactly what it's going to do. And they know exactly what kind of feedback they should get. And I'm not saying that they do things to confuse drivers or or truly test them uh, to see if they are giving the correct feedback or not. But you are with a new driver, new scenario. Let's see who you are. If you're someone to consider for the future, you're looking for truthiness in feedback. And it's not like a driver is going to tell you a lie. I would hope they wouldn't, but whether they are giving you truthful, honest answers because they are feeling it compared to guessing and or not being totally sure. So if we're just talking what's the the general takeaway with something like this, with someone like this, it's going to be, yeah, did they get it? Were they perceiving things that was happening with the car that was both real but then also beneficial to give back to us? Because we put these test items 
we put these test lists together and the items on that list because we want to learn things. We've got ideas. It's all ideas, Andy. Hey, we have this we have this idea that this damping direction is going to produce some fruit. We have an idea that this geometry change coupled with this other change is going to give us this thing. We don't know if it will or we think it will or whatever, but ultimately the stopwatch is going to tell us one thing. Was it faster or slower? But what did the driver say? Maybe there was no improvement in speed, but the driver says, boy, car feels a ton better, right? To produce this identical lap time before that change, I was having to fight the thing and I was having to really go on the outer edge and take risks and whatever else. Well, now I can do the same lap time thanks to this change you've just done and it's no longer high risk, holy cow, I can do it a little bit easier. Well, why is that good? It means it's more repeatable. You can do it without having to take that higher risk and suffer the potentials of that risk biting you. So again, you're just looking for feel. What are you getting back? Can you also build some things with the driver, right? Hey, this driver is suggesting maybe we try this after feeling whatever te- uh, whatever change we just did. Um, you know, it's, a, it's the minutia. It really is. I think of this stuff, Andy, like if you're a football fan, like the Combine. Right, They run the quarterbacks through and the running backs and the offensive linemen and the tackles and the this and the that. And they run them all through the same exact things. And everything's done with video, a stopwatch, some sort of measurement often. But there's also things where you go, oh, all right, so there's no metric applied to this. Uh, The guy ran up, cut right, spun around, ran left, then went straight up the field try and catch a ball well there's no i mean you could measure the time and distance and all that crap but by and large it's scouts looking going ah look look at the body control that he has look at the extension look at his feet how fast he was able to do that spin move and regain his composure and hey this guy halfway tripped which wasn't good, but look at his recovery to then sprint down at top speed to catch the ball. Just some of these intangibles. There, there's a definite combine element to it, and you know maybe as we have some more time, Andy, future episodes when we don't have uh, three and a half hours of questions to get to, maybe we can delve into this uh, combine aspect a little bit more because uh, there's a lot of parallels there. Uh, Brett Ross. How you doing, Brett? MP, I'd like to see Jimmy Johnson running Indy Lights. Curious your thoughts on Jimmy going straight to IndyCar. Uh, I mean, hey, if he had the time, it'd be smart for him to do some Indy Lights racing just to get accustomed to open wheel racing. But the guy is one of the most talented race cars of any in the world. Certainly of his generation. And I'm not just saying nascar generation i mean that skill is what has allowed him to win 97 cup titles this is something too where he comes into cup with a lot of background or a lot of experience off-road so wickedly different disciplines he has come and done sports car racing endurance racing in particular has he ever been the fastest guy in the car i don't think so but he also hasn't had a full year of running in sports cars to then develop himself to see if he can be the fastest. 
Jimmy, if we're talking about what he's about to embark upon, Brett and IndyCar, what I'm most looking forward to with Jimmy Johnson is one year away, or I take that back, a year and a half away. Uh, 2021 is going to be fun and interesting for him. He's going to be last or close to last pretty much everywhere he goes, learning all the tracks for the first time, learning every lost just crazy amount to learn. And I just hope that he does not get discouraged because he should be last or close to last because even the least experienced IndyCar driver next to him most likely is going to be a road to Indy veteran, a European road to F1 veteran who might be new to IndyCar and might even be new to the very same tracks but has spent their lives in these little single seaters with wings and crazy horsepower to weight ratios. And so this is just a giant learning curve for him doing a season in Indy lights eh, at his age. It'd be a waste. It'd be a waste of a year that he doesn't really have to waste. So 2021, if you love Jimmy Johnson, Set your expectations appropriately. He is not going to be awesome anywhere. There might be some places where you say, hey, wow, qualified 12th, made the Firestone Fast 12, did some things here. Like there will absolutely be times where you go, whoa, that was really cool. What I'm looking forward to in this two-year thing he's committed to is year two. Because year one's just going to be nuts for him. And I think it'd be unfair to say, well, seven-time champion. I mean, if you're not, we know that this team, they're the defending champions. How many races did they win last season? Well, you should be as well, or close to it. You should be on the podium. Uh, I think that's crazy. If you look at the rest of the people he's having to go up against, it's just a paddock full of hunter killers who've only done this stuff more or less. Scott McLaughlin, a little bit of an outlier, much younger guy. Obviously, he's been in uh, the V8 Supercar Series. Knowing that he doesn't have a super extensive Formula Ford or or open-wheel background, but I would say it's a lot different have a 28-year-old guy coming in to do this than a 44-year-old guy. Uh, So who's specialized in ovals, whereas Scott at least has only ever specialized in road racing dropping a road racer from sporty type cars touring cars into this again he's already got a big advantage over jimmy who's an oval guy by and large or (laughs) jumps and off-road and dirt so just need to set that at the right place i would say brett um and everyone who's a jimmy johnson fan i'm a jimmy johnson fan i want to see the guy kick some ass but uh my calendar Uh, for any real expectations for him doing things with, you know, real expectations, that's 2022. Uh, Sam Anadiotis, Marshall, first-time questioner. Hey, man, I'm so happy. I love it when we get listeners who have listened but not submitted, so thanks for doing that, Sam. says, I know Jimmy Johnson's not planning on running ovals in 2021, but is he planning on skipping the Indy 500 as well? says, hashtag me personally, I think it would be a great shame if we were to not run in the Indy 500. I'm with you, Sam. Sadly, he has been adamant in saying that the agreement between himself and his wife 
is that he can do the road and street courses, not the ovals. There is certainly a justified level of fear, having never done them before, but having seen monstrous crashes in IndyCar, uh, you can understand why uh, Mrs. Johnson would not be on board with that. Now, a couple things just to throw in, not saying his mind will or permissions will change or anything else, but this is a case where Jimmy has had certainly had some monster crashes in his career, and we know that that happens almost every weekend in NASCAR, but these are giant vehicles, right? Just surrounded by steel tubing and padding all day long, and, you know, uh, you can have giant crashes and still be relatively safe for the driver. A lot of what they would have seen in IndyCar would have been pre-aero screen. So this is the one thing where I, I think and hope that after doing the vast majority of next season, he and his wife will see that, oh, <clears throat> this is actually far safer than we ever knew it could be. And <laughs> do I think that completing the first however many races that take place before the Indy 500 next year, uh, assuming there's no COVID delays, do I think that Jimmy, having done, again, a lot of road and street course races, uh, achieve some childhood fantasies of racing at the Long Beach Grand Prix and all kinds of stuff? Do I think rolling in, doing the Indy GP road course and then stepping out, and I would imagine staying with the team, uh, but watching everybody else get to play at the Indy 500, do I think that is going to be a... Uh, honey, can we, can we talk maybe uh, about this? Uh, I don't, you know, are they going to have a car secretly, secretly ready for him, um, to drive? I don't, I doubt it. I don't know, but, uh, I would have to believe that there might be a pretty strong reconsideration attempt. And I would also say his wife, I don't know her, but she seems pretty cool. Um, would have to imagine she might look at it and reevaluate it as well, because obviously, she has sacrificed a lot uh, as he has been out living his dreams and having the career that he's had sacrificed. She has sacrificed a lot. Every loved one in the sport, as I overstate the obvious, sacrifices a lot so that we can drive, manage, mechanic, report, whatever. At you know mid-40s, tail end of his racing career, I, if I'm in her shoes, I'm saying, you know what, sucker? <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll extend the, the party a little bit longer, and we'll keep racing and doing this other thing you've dreamt of doing, but I'm not putting you at risk. You're not putting you at risk. So the one place that we know holds the highest risks, we're not going to do those kinds of races. I can understand that agreement. After seeing the aero screen this year, and I would hope next year, Maybe they'll they'll see that wow these cars are at a place of safety that's pretty much unheralded, uh, and so maybe that 500 could become an option. Sam, thank you seriously, thank you so much for uh, sending this in. Let's go to John Haverlin Marshall. Have you heard anything about Robert Wickens and his ongoing recovery lately? He hasn't posted much on Twitter the last few months. Uh, and I'm concerned because it feels like he used to share updates about his improvements every few days or weeks, wishing you and your wife well. Funny you should mention, I don't have an answer for you, John, but it has occurred to me in the last week or so, 
that Robbie and I have not connected in a while. Uh, did see a post. It might have been a video. I might have only just seen the um, the thumbnail image of it, of him and carting something about his brother uh, helping to put together a hand control cart. But yeah, I am, well, either A, I'm overdue in reaching out and checking in on him to see how he's doing, and or he's overdue in reaching out and checking in to see how we're doing. One way or the other, um, I need to pull the trigger and just check in on our boy because what's not to love about Robert Wickens as a human being, but also as an athlete. And uh, of all the things that I want to make great again, it's getting Robbie Wickens into an Indy car so he can demonstrate his greatness again. I need someone, and this is a super tiny, I'm putting a few toes onto the soapbox here and then taking it right back off. I would love for someone to explain to me how in a series that has NTT data, that has aero electronics, that has Hitachi, that has this, that has that is just seemingly filled from head to toe with high-tech electronics, software, manufacturing, uh, power tools, uh, Chevrolet, Honda. There's so much technology mobility just everything seemingly at our disposal how has there not been a coalition of the willing uh to come together and say okay so we're looking for good stories we're looking for things that are going to make fans of triumph in life who doesn't love a great overcoming odd story um we have the perfect one in front of us there's a canadian guy by the name of robbie wickens who subtracting that Pocono crash in 2018 that changed his life. Yeah, we might be celebrating his first IndyCar championship right now. That's how talented he is. But life wasn't so kind to ease that path for him. Has the talent gone away? No, not at all. Has the desire to race an IndyCar and become a champion changed? Nope. Well, with so many companies, so many resources, um, I must admit I continue to fail to understand why someone with the power and the authority and either the finances or the relationships or just the will to pull these companies together or to have a call, a group call, hi, who all's willing to get in? We don't have it all figured out yet, but A, you want to promote your product? You want people to look into IndyCar and give you more return on investment? Uh, the Robert Wickens is back racing story? That doesn't just air on ESPN once. That is something that gets picked up and followed everywhere because it's that powerful and amazing. This is the kind of stuff that movies get made about. Why isn't this happening for Robert Wickens. I don't understand. Last thing to mention here, then I'm jumping off the soapbox and we're going to continue the shotgun approach. This guy, as teams look for, hey, our driver just left, or hey, we just cut that driver's contract loose to go in a different direction, and who do we, who should we try and get? Robert Wickens! 
Is there a better driver that has been signed since Robbie last competed in an IndyCar race? Is there a better, name me a better driver that's been signed to IndyCar. There isn't one. There's actually the absence of that, a void of, holy crap, that guy's kick-ass and available. They kind of almost don't exist. So here's a guy who can be that for you, bring you the best story of any. Hey, Jimmy Johnson, love you. You're trying this. It's great. You're going to get some NASCAR fans and great. The average person in the country, sadly, that's not going to be a compelling thing. A guy fighting paralysis to get back into IndyCar through the use of technology and folks just getting behind him as a writer and reporter and whatever else, that's a dream thing to cover for any media outlet, TV, print, web, whatever you trust me, you're going to be running out of ad space because folks want to get in on that and be associated with it. And yet racing a go-kart with hand controls put together by his brother, love his brother. And that's amazing. But this ridiculous IndyCar, you're failing here. So, uh, Nick Dovniak. All right. Uh, you, and also one from Kevin Frederico. We got a couple here that are pretty long. We'll see how uh, quickly we can get through those in the limited time I have left tonight. Uh, what does it take? Uh, what does the long-term future of IndyCar look like? Nick says, from an owner's perspective, it looks like the field is propped up by the astounding passion of three owners, one of which owns the series. Each team seems to be struggling to find money to field at least one of their cars. Uh, COVID-19 aside, overall growth seems to be at a snail's pace. Uh, when these three owners decide to hang it up, what is there to sell uh, other than the physical assets? It says with minimal growth and a struggle to find money, what is the business case for a new owner stepping in? Obviously, we all love it, but it seems to hashtag me personally be like a very expensive passion project. What happens when the passion runs out? What am I missing here? Well, there you go, Nick. Kind of, you know, uh, crapping on the carpet at the party, pal. I mean, we were having a good time. Granted, I just had a little mini rant. So you say true things. Yes, this is something that is not particularly profitable for too many team owners. This, more than anything, though, is something where we don't see a bunch of new owners coming in big. You got Mike Shank, who came in. Jim Meyer joined in, which is amazing. But Mike came in doing six races. I did one race the first year, Carly. Second year, um, I think that was still a vehicle lease. I I, I forget. I don't remember if he bought his own car or not uh, for the second year. But... Then it expanded to 10. Then, what, four years after four years, went to full time. Uh, we had Dragon Speed come in, planned to do three, four, five, six. Some things happened, weren't able to. They did, what, I think two, three in 2019. This year, uh, they had plans to do more, but that all went super sideways. Ended up doing one, and they're gone. Um. You know, we can look at some other join-in type deals. Jackie Heinricher wants to join in next season with somebody. Have a feeling who that might be, but they're still looking around. So we'll do an update on that at some point in time in the future. But to Nick's point, your point, Nick, when's the last time brand new team, 
full time. Let's rock and roll. When did that happen? Oh, it's been a while. And I'm actually, I mean, Carlin maybe, right? But Carlin's been up and down one car, two car, haven't had a full, they didn't have a full-time entry this year. I know that the car was there full-time, but they didn't have an actual single driver uh, being in the seat for the entire time. Um, After Carlin, I mean, that's about it, right? So of the many things that need to be considered and I don't have an idea yet. This is yet another thing I need to ask about and hopefully write about sometime soon. Is this very thing? How do you groom new owners? And if it's all just passion project, the worry and concern, which is super valid and been proved time and time again, Nick, is everybody runs out of passion. or And by passion, it's usually money. Uh, hey, yeah, retired sold my company, got a whole huge chunk of dough, and I've always dreamt of being an IndyCar team owner. And you do it for a couple years, and then your CPA says, uh, at this rate, you're going to be working as a greeter at Walmart in a few years. Stop, sell, get out, save yourself. Or, again, the, the reasons are many. Divorce. Half things are taken out. Uh, Who knows? Stock market plunged. So many things happen. The real business reason, the real business value, that's the thing that is so hard to put in front of folks right now. So I'm just repeating what you're saying because it is true. That's the hard thing. Hey, if you go spend a million plus, get a car, spend $1.2 per year-ish on an engine lease, uh, what a nearly a million, I believe, on a tire lease, and you do all these things, and sponsorship is not super easy to find right now. TV ratings are, you know, flat. Last year there was a slight uptick, but the ratings aren't overpowering to help you get those sponsors you might want to get. It's going to be very expensive. We're going to a new hybrid power plant here soon which is certainly going to be more expensive there's a new car coming at some point it's all just spending a lot of money and boy i think the argument to do this while we all love it and say we we can find reasons for others to spend six million dollars a year per entry um would any of us do this if we had 10 million dollars in the bank would you make that investment? Uh, boy, I think not. If you had $10 million in the bank total, and that was meant to kind of carry you through the rest of your life, would you, and we'll just say it's six, it's more because you're going to need trucks and a shop and all kind of health care and all kinds of things you're paying for, but we'll just say six. Would you spend six of that $10 million to be an IndyCar team owner for a year in the hope that you would find sponsors during that year to help pay for things in year two because you've only got $4 million left to get you through the rest of your life. And I know $4 million sounds like a whole bunch for the rest of your life. It is. I'm not saying it isn't. But, or do you say, well, gee, oh, we got so close. And this is the thing that usually happens. 
Ah, uh, well, all right, I'm going to put in more money. And do you put in three of your four? And you got half a budget and believe that you can maybe kind of find a sponsor or sponsors or driver who brings half. And then you're doing year two. Uh, yeah. And then what do you do then? You're got a mil- You don't just have one of your 10 left. Yeah. But you got closer. Do you, again, I'm just saying, I don't think most people would because once you get in, you want to do better. Everyone has a reason how you can do better. Uh, this is a great question, Nick. It's a well-known problem. It's a well-known issue. We Again, it's been a fact for a good long while. The fact that Carlin, with, you know, super billionaire investor co-owner in uh, Graham Chilton, that's amazing. Thank goodness for him. Again, uh, he didn't come in with $5 million and say, this is a perfect investment for me. And I can make money as a business owner by being an indie car. Real money. Not, hey, I made a hundred grand this year, but real money. Folks doing this stuff in these days, you know, their expectations are high. Um, we're not there, man. I don't have the answers. I just know that uh, I'd love to hear from the folks who own the series about if and what they might do to improve this. Uh, Kevin, Frederico, uh, repost talking about with the arrow screen. Do you think. Uh, IndyCar could compete in the open-wheel class to run up the hill at Pikes Peak, uh, and would the current package be fast enough to take open the open-wheel uh, open class and overall record if they ran up the mountain? Uh, you also mentioning some modifications would be needed. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see it, of course. And you mentioned, you know, it could be a modern triple crown with Long Beach Grand Prix, Indy 500, and Pikes Peak. Imagine Rossi heard a Sato Power Award Dixon going full attack in the mountain. Uh, that would be made for TV action. I love, again, I love the idea. Uh, I mean, I love many of your ideas, Kev. Um, obviously, being turbocharged, that helps to force air into motors as the air starts to get really thin. But even so, you still lose a ton of power as you get to the top. We'd have to remove all boost restrictions. We'd have to remove all kinds of things so that the li- any limitations faced in IndyCar uh, sanction would not be the case. I don't recall if in the open-wheel class um, that all if all-wheel drive is allowed, that wouldn't be something they could really engineer into the car, so that could be a limitation. Uh, you could throw in your street course steering rack to help um, get up the hill in some of the tight turns for sure. Uh, the thing can make more downforce than just about anything. So, I mean, I think there'd be something there for sure. Uh, it'd be a blast. Would it be maybe more of a DW12 thing that someone might try and do once we move to the DW23 or whatever it might be? I don't know, but uh, pretty fun. Uh, let's see. Lance Snyder, never heard of him. You say to get a repeat question answered, I need to insult you. So here it goes. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Look at that. Our minister of mirth brings Monty Python to the show. Here goes the question. With no money object, uh, let's form a two-car team. With Hinch and Askew driving and call it FFS Racing, fired from Spam Racing. What says you? Uh, he says, get better or I shall taunt you a second time. Uh, yeah. So 
fired from spam racing ffs i love that uh i would say many of us with juvenile minds would probably gravitate to for f's sake racing which might also be a perfect acronym to describe what happened with those two gentlemen uh being disinvited from uh the cars that they were driving so I think you got a winner here. So uh, does that mean that torontomotorsports.com is going to have a new Roger Warwick tune t-shirt of FFS racing here uh, by tomorrow? Probably. Uh, Jared Burcham says if 2020 took the craziest of turns and Robin Miller was elected president, who should be his VP and what is his first executive order? Well, that's a really easy thing to answer, Jared. Uh, His VP, he already has a VP. That's the thing. He has a a daily life-based vice president. Uh, the, the Mike Pence of his world is a fine gentleman by the name of Stephen Chunk. That being Stephen Chunk, man of extraordinary public relations and publicity skills and talents. Uh, yes, Steve Chunk is is the flavor flave to robin miller's chuck d uh yes and has been is wonderful in that role and has just immense love for the newly elected president and robin miller uh takes really good care of him and yeah uh so y'all might not know this because it's more of just a in the paddock and whatever but um steve is a you might not know Steve at all, but uh, Steve is a giant heart and is a very, very sweet person who understands that his dear buddy, Mr. Miller, who's been going through some hard times for a couple of years now, uh, without a wife, kids, and whatever to look after him, uh, Miller's been really fortunate to have a guy by the name of Steve Shunk who treats him like brother, whatever it might be, uh, just a lot of love. So I know it's a funny question that you ask, and I mean to get a little bit serious here, but uh, that'd be Steve Shunk. He already is his VP, his lifelong appointment, and I we, we could not ask for anyone better to look after him. What is his first executive order? Well, that's really easy, I would say, as well. Um, I think A.J. Foyt is definitely named. I think his name is placed on all military bases. I believe all statues on federal property are either replaced or modified to look like Anthony Joseph Foyt. That first executive order effectively blankets the country from coast to coast in honor of Anthony Joseph Foyt. So, yes, everything possible uh except for libraries you know we got to be a little honest here um coloring book wing maybe but probably not the overall anthony joseph Floyd library but um yeah so that i mean the first ex- executive order a thousand percent about him uh all right i am going to hit the pause button we need to get some dinner going get the uh, evening portion of the program going here at the good old pruitt household it's taken about an hour to get through all the main questions. Uh, those are the ones above the line set by Tim Falkowitz. 
and guess what's below it? Twice the amount. So if this is all you want to listen to, as I've been doing lately, thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Thank you to you for the awesome questions. I'm going to pick back up here, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. I don't know when, but it's going to be all the, quote, overtime questions. Not that they aren't as good as the ones above the line, but, you know, Tim, clearly, he's not a big fan of the rest of you. Kidding. Be back in a little bit. Well, I'm getting back to this much later than expected. It is 12.50 p.m. on a beautifully sunny and slightly overcast day in Northern California, looking out across the bay. Ah, that sunshine and clarity in the sky. It's a beautiful thing. All right, so we got through all the questions that our man Tim Falkowitz put above the cut line, but, you know, it's uh, it's a busy week of questions. I'm late. I want to get to as many as I can, so we're going to keep going with the shotgun approach. We're going to start off here with Cat Hicks. How you doing, Cat? says, hey, Marshall, from a little bit up the 880 from you and uh, your wife in Oakland. Hope you are doing well. Thanks, Cat. I actually got to head up there shortly-ish uh, to Berkeley. Uh, so I'll honk when I drive by Oaktown. Uh, says, I've just recently come back to watching IndyCar during the pandemic, primarily being a NASCAR fan and formerly working with the sponsor side. It's always been where my primary interest lies. As a female race fan, I'm always keen to get young female racers on my radar. Are there any I should be keeping an eye on in the lower ranks of IndyCar? Well, Kat, your optimism and enthusiasm is something we're going to need because I am unable to point you towards young women that are on that road to Indy in any significant capacity. Sabre Cook, she did a handful of races this year, but not many, and things didn't go overly well for her. So she's one who uh, I've certainly had a hope and heard others say they believe that she possesses considerable talent. But as you well know, developing talent, uh, that's the key. How many amazing athletes in whatever sport uh, are identified in that kind of college level, high school, college level, who don't go on to become the stars that we believe they could Usually something goes wrong or sideways uh, during that developmental phase. So hoping that for Sabre, things can indeed uh, get turned around a little bit there. Uh, There aren't a lot of of young women on the open wheel side that we can say without a doubt have been able to get stuck in and are marching upwards. It's a lot of have taken one step or two or been there but fallen off. Uh, Isla Agrin is one who jumps out, did a podcast with her earlier this year, and she's awesome. Definitely falls into that category of, boy, if someone were to believe in her and give her a shot, uh, there's something I think that could be developed. Uh, Courtney Crone is another one who jumps out. She is certainly talented, but uh, not even quite yet at the... uh, USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000 level. Um, so there's some, but not enough. Mostly to answer your question, we're talking and granted, we're not, I don't really care about borders and such. Just talking about American women first, 
uh, here for this U.S. championship, but there's a lot of European talent that, you know, uh, I mentioned Jamie Chadwick and Alice Powell every now and then. Those are two women who I would love to see in Indy Lights or Indy Car with the proper team, proper opportunity, and there are a lot of young women below them. Uh, Sophia Flourish is one who's mentioned as one that uh, folks hope can continue her journey. This might be the, the really dumb answer. It might be a good one. I don't know what it is. You'd be the judge, obviously, Cat. But, boy, I think an identification initiative would be really strong. Maybe I should get my behind in gear and try and do that of assembling list of wider talent and who knows it could be down at the karting level it could be more regional amateur racing who knows uh try and come up with a deeper wider list and hope and encourage folks at indycar with their race for diversity and change and imsa with some things they're trying to do and who knows to say hey just saying, if you're trying to really make a difference here, here are some, some young women who deserve your attention. So I know that I always feel ignorant in this topic because since there aren't one, two, three, four young women embedded and marching up the road to Indy, trying to find those who you might funnel towards the road to Indy, um, that's where I just know that I need to have better answers for you and others the next time that gets asked. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal Lynn, the IndyCar fan. Marshall, second request. With Dixon winning a sixth championship, who would you consider his rival? Or did he have more than one based on his 18-year run? Plenty, obviously. The newest one would be Joseph Newgarden, and I hope they continue this rivalry for a few more years. You could say his teammate Dario Franchitti was certainly one for sure. Will Power, Elio Castro Neves, his former teammate Dan Weldon uh, was certainly one there. Um, yeah, been a number. Um, the best, I'd say Dario. Dario was a puzzle that he did not readily or easily solve, and it really took until the last year of driving together for Dixie to get the upper hand. And that only speaks to the quality of Dario, but also speaks to Dixon where he might not be able to solve his teammates immediately, but give the guy time, and he's going to uh, deconstruct and uh, assimilate and overtake, overcome, etc. Let's see, where else are we going to go? Tim Prollo. Hey, Tim, if you've sent, you have. Uh, I'm sorry, you. I was about to say, if you haven't sent in questions before, you right here, first-time questioner. Thank you, Tim. I do appreciate you and all those who uh, who reach out for the first time here on Twitter, Facebook, or Reddit. Uh, it says, we all know IndyCar is uh, known as a spec series. Been that way for some time now. But are there team-developed parts uh, in use in the suspension electronics or programming that gives them an edge over the other teams? Are they required to make any proprietary stuff available to other teams? Uh, Tim says, thanks, love the show. Well, thank you, Tim. Seriously, really do appreciate this uh let's see yes so indycar in the last what two-ish years or so has said okay we're gonna let you start making some things uh that you have been forced to buy from vendors mostly delara since the dw12 came out prior to the dw12 teams made their own suspension and a lot of other things so yeah uh i believe suspension is an area 
I'd have to look back through the document. Um, know that a lot of the, the piping, um, a lot of the ancillary items that uh, support the engine teams are allowed to make. Uh, beyond that, not electronics. Um, programming that is open to the engine manufacturers. So, yes, uh, Honda and or Chevy uh, are allowed to use the ECUs um, as they see fit. But the teams, other than their data systems, there's no real performance-based programming that they're allowed to do. Uh, That would all be through the engine manufacturer. Things like throttle maps, right? How the engine reacts based on throttle input and different settings, uh, to give the driver the reaction that they want from the motor. Um, that's something that is established and inputted by the uh, engine manufacturer compared to the team being able to play with that. So keep sending in questions, Tim. Always love it when we get uh, listeners reaching out for the first time. Stephen White as well. Marshall, why don't you start an IndyCar team? You and Robin, LOL. Well, LOL is right, Stephen. Um, So here's a funny thing, maybe. I don't know if it's funny. It's real. Back when I was starting to get the feel that I might want to make a career change in the late 90s. So while I did not spend a long, long time working in IndyCar, it was five years that I did that. Um. I was starting to get the feel towards the end of the 90s that, yeah, I needed to do something different. And I didn't know what, but I was just tired of working for other people. Um, and I, granted, I enjoyed some of the experiences greatly, but also had some where I didn't. And so around 98, end of 98, into 99, maybe mid to end 99, I'm not totally sh- sure. Uh, a friend of mine, David Cater, who uh, worked in racing, more on the design and marketing and whatever side, he and I said, well, Indy Racing League teams are not too expensive to put together and run. I knew that because I was either helping to put together or had run Indy Racing League teams. said, well, why don't we see if we can come up with something? And so we started, I, I think I might have mentioned this somewhere once. It's not a secret. It's just so unnoteworthy. I've never mentioned it. Uh, he and I formed Marshall David IndyCar. Um, yeah. And I think our email address, which I don't remember where it was hosted, but it was MDI Marshall David IndyCar underscore IRL at whatever it was. So we made some pretty significant efforts to find sponsors, took a lot of meetings. Uh, I spoke with a lot of people that I'd worked with could be a chief mechanic at this team or a person at that team. Hey, are you committed for next year? If, if not, what would you think you would want to, uh, to come to work for us? If we were able to put something together, um, had a, the biggest meeting that we had was with, Oh Lord, I'm forgetting the name of it. I can find the proposal. Uh, web TV. That's what it was. And I believe it was owned by Microsoft. I think Microsoft bought them. They're based in Silicon Valley. And however it was, somehow there, we had contacts at Web TV. 
And so this is something that for those of you who are younger or newer to the world, you might not know it, but uh, like live streaming stuff. Yeah, it was once upon a time, not a thing at all. (laughs) Uh, Phones were just things that had little numbers that you pressed, not virtual keypad, but actual physical buttons you had to press for your mobile phone to call one another. There's no video. There was no anything. Uh, This was really the first major company to try and say, Hey, we can bring the connected online world to your television, to things in general. Uh, we can maybe connect this worldwide web to things beyond just being the worldwide web. Maybe we can do it through a TV and who knows what other things. And so it was this really promising thing. So we pitched them, I think it was a three-year, two-car, 20-ish, $24 million deal. They didn't bite, right? I mean, they're smart. But um, we pitched that, and this was going to be, had everything worked out, this was going to be really the first wired and connected indie car IRL effort of any kind. Uh, We were going to have uh, cameras, webcams, on pit lane in the garages 24 hours a day and this was going to be hyper interactive with racing fans indycar fans and all as a vehicle to help them sell their web tv subscriptions and uh devices to bring the web to your television and yeah so this was about 99 i'm not saying we were ahead of any kind of curve i just know that this was not a thing in racing uh, and being able to advertise this and show it and the speed and the quality of it, all things you might say could be easily associated with motor racing, the Indy 500, which was a big deal. Um, yeah, so we tried to do that, and it ultimately went nowhere. But I have, I think, one or two of my old business cards and uh, a few other things. But actually, you know, went to considerable effort to uh, try and plan things out, and it didn't go anywhere. So that's a little backstory that, frankly... Uh, very few people know just because it's totally unremarkable as for why don't i start a team well i enjoy my life steven um i've already done this uh in terms of running teams and so yeah uh i i am really good with what i have right now as for robin and i uh, we don't need failure Uh, we're going to go ahead and try and avoid failure in indycar as much as possible Let's see. Where else are we going here? Chris Peterson. Hey, MP. What would be the most awesome car and driver combo you can think of? How about Senna in a non-wing sprinter, Rick Mears in a Group B rally car, and what ridiculously silly car could we stick Alex Rossi in that would befit his ennui? Wow, you use the word ennui in an episode here. He says a uh, deux chevaux, meaning a Citroën 2CV. What will we put Rossi in, right? Uh, we gotta, we gotta think of all the things that make Alex spectacular and awesome and unique. Hmm. You've already taken sprint car, dirt car, and a Group B car off the list of things we could put him in. Part of me says a Mercedes Formula One car because he never got the a proper shot in F one. But what would we? I think we might need to go. That's what we need to do. If we're just going hit fantasy, 
I'd want to see him in late mid to late seventies form Atlantic, right? Uh, Bobby Rahal, KK Rosberg, Gilles Villeneuve, a uh, bunch of other insane people, James Hunt popping over every now and then for uh, some form of Canadian round. I'd love to see him in something like that. Uh, just because again, the guy is so wickedly talented. Why not chuck him in with a bunch of legends in a car that was the cars that at that point weren't super high downforce, weren't all about big tunnels, just, you know, uh, giant tires, decent wings, lots of sideways motoring. I bet he would be the happiest guy in the world and it'd be so much fun. So yeah, uh, I love the Rick Mears in a group B rally car, Chris, seriously, that's uh, like just reading that makes me wonder how can I put together a day for uh, the rocket in a Group B car somewhere. Uh, Daniel Summerskill, hey pal, is there a reason why some drivers only compete on the road and street courses and not the ovals and vice versa? As by not doing some tracks that can't real realistically compete for the championship, is it a safety or risk thing, or is it all about money? Ah, I wish there was one answer, Daniel. This is the uh, the good old how long is a piece of string question. It's an individual thing for each person. Ed Carpenter did road courses and street courses for a long time and got so good at them. Problem was, never great. And the ones that he's going up against were great. And so the divide between good and great just led Ed to say, you know what, why keep beating my head against the wall? Why feel like oh my gosh i have just turned in the best performance i've ever had behind the wheel of an indy car on a rotor street course and i'm 18th um why not just focus on the things that i love being the ovals but the things that are my specialty and so that was his decision went and found road and street course specialists to fill in the seat for the rest of the year they then therefore qualify for a leader circle contract there you go Jimmy Johnson, the opposite, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Wife said, nope, uh, not doing the ovals. Those are the ones that I fear the most, so have fun on the road and street courses. That's what he's doing. Uh, and we'll see who ends up driving the car on the ovals. But that's yet another decision right there. Mike Conway, having done both and hurt himself badly on uh, in oval racing, decided, you know what, uh, hey, that road and street course thing looks pretty cool. Uh, I'm going to convert myself to doing that. I remember when he made that decision. I remember being at Fontana uh, in a thousand degree weather uh, for the, the pre-race test day. And it was a bit of a surprise, but I also fully understood it and also thought it was pretty shitty, frankly, of a lot of people who just uh, tore him apart for not being man enough and whatever. And you go, right, I'm going to chuck you into the turn two fencing at Indy uh snap the car in half break you in half then after you go through that recovery you and then continue doing ovals for a while then you can comment on his manhood balls and re resolve but yeah uh so fully understand it i how's this man if i had the money to do indycar plus the talent, two things I currently lack. Um, I might do road and street courses only. I know nothing about ovals. Never. I mean, I've driven around a couple ovals in a road car, not 
you know, anything that you would consider to be uh, high rates of speed and boy, you could really find out, you know, learn stuff and get a, a knack for it. No, not at all. I have spent my life by and large stuck into road and street courses, learned the oval side as I got into uh, the professional side, being a young mechanic and all that, going to Phoenix as part of the Super V. I think that was the first place I went, uh, oval that I went to as part of uh, being a junior open wheel mechanic and then plenty more after that. But my experience is road and street courses. Granted, I don't think I've raced on a street course, but um, lots of road racing. So as a driver, some of have some experience but just spent the majority of my life in that world that's what makes sense to me if i had the money to do this daniel i'd be finding someone to drive the ovals because it's not my experience and yeah i'm afraid i would hurt myself uh that because i yeah lack of knowledge experience and skill so there you go uh let's see dame dame i'm not drunk y'all at if anything i'm over caffeinated so I shouldn't be farting in the brain, but I am. Hey, uh, James Freshy. Hey, James, if this is your first time sending something in, man, I really appreciate it. And if not, I sorry, I'm forgetting. And our cat Rocky has jumped up, uh, which means he wants to be fed, and he's going to be a pain in the ass and probably start meowing until I do. He says, hey, Marshall, sending healing thoughts to you and your lovely wife. Thank you, sir. Uh, says, are IndyCar chassis replaced each year, uh, or some of them two, three, or more years old with many miles on them? Also asked, does a carbon fiber chassis age well? Uh, in a general sense, James, yes, they age very well. Uh, every year, no, not at all. Uh, many of the chassis in the series are many, many, many years old. So I don't have a list in front of me, but I do know for a fact that the vast majority of the cars in the series are very old, very, very old. And, uh, there are tests that get done usually at the end of the year. I don't know. Maybe some teams might do a middle of the year as well. Uh, they will do a, a twist test to measure the deflection of the chassis, right? That was always something back before carbon fiber. Well, we're talking IndyCar, but also in many other series where tube frame, uh, chassis are used where, uh, usually the way it's done is the front of the car is, placed in a fixture and there is a uh, basically measurement device and it is twisted at the back. So if you think of holding something in hand uh, that flexes like a shoe, basically if you think of holding your shoe in hand, you could twist it with your left and right hand and get a feel for how much it twists. In this case, they take the front of the chassis attach it to a fixture where it is held suspended uh, and locked in place. And through basically, uh, granted, there are a couple of different ways to do this, but uh, the back of the car will be twisted uh, using a lever. And that lever uh, will have, uh, could be a micrometer, could be whatever it might, what teams have a variety of options of doing this too, um, but measure how much the chassis deflects. Uh, and so over a standard distance, so they'll try and twist the chassis, say one inch or a quarter of an inch or try again, try and see how much force goes into that, but also 
how much it does actually deflect. So this is not an uncommon practice at all, and it'll also give teams an idea whether the structures, the bulkheads, the everything that form this chassis are holding tight or not. And if they aren't, eh, there's not much you can do. Uh, unlike, say, a, a tube frame chassis where you can cut things out and weld them right back in easily, comes a point where you go, well, this carbon chassis is just now twisting a little bit too much. That means our setups are going to be, <laughs> uh, we cannot have much faith in them, and we're going to need to look at something new. There's also you know, just some simple things. Gen generally referred to, I believe, as a knock test, and this has been going on forever. And whether it's using a uh, actual coin, a quarter, or something else that's metal, it's tapping, right? Since this is not metal where you can do, uh, you can easily see fatigue. Uh, this is certainly a, uh, a situation where teams will try and tap around certain areas where they know that there's a lot of high load, and you should hear some pretty crisp responses with that tick 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 and if you hear something that's a little softer kind of a thud uh compared to a crisp sound coming back could mean that the honeycomb there is compressed a bit or something isn't as solid as it should be so yeah um in general though james provided we're not talking about a car a chassis the tub itself that has received a ton of hits and needed a lot of repairs over the year and had a lot of suspensions ripped off and mounting brackets punched through or, or slightly pulled out. We're talking a tub that has not been mangled. They tend to tend to last pretty darn long time. Uh, all right, we're going to keep going with the shotgun stuff here. Sean, Starkey, Marshall, you mentioned before about the pleasant aromas that your queen fills the air with when she has opportunities to cook. Uh, so since you've been under the weather, what are some of the classic comfort foods at the Pruitt household? Please send our regards to Mrs. Pruitt for enduring while you recovered. Thank you, Sean. That's really sweet of you to send this. You know, we haven't been doing a whole lot of cooking lately with me being a little bit under the weather and my wife, uh, it's not, she hasn't been under the weather. Just these have been busy weeks. This, uh, this week is what I referred to as a four out of five week. Uh, I think I might've mentioned where we were traveling four out of five days and yeah, I just looked next week is a five out of five day. So every single day we are traveling some of them pretty long days. What Friday for us yesterday was, I think we were gone six to seven hours driving all over heck and back. So good stuff, positive stuff, all aimed towards healing. Just, yeah. So the end result, especially for my wife, who's uh, fighting some uh, health stuff, as we know, and also some uh, mobility things uh, that has her doing a lot of hours per week at physical therapy and pushing like mad. It means that her her battery is pretty much drained uh, every day, and especially by the time we get to the end of Friday. So that just means that, uh, I don't know, I'm just sharing a little bit of stuff here since you asked. She will often say, hey, I really want to you know, try and cook this uh, for us for next week, or I have this thing in mind that I really want to do. And I will often discourage her just in the name of, I need you to get more rest and to recharge that battery because without that battery being up a bit, it makes all the things we have to go and do each week uh, much harder and also seriously limits the value and benefit of the time uh, in physical therapy because 
if you're just knocked out and it isn't there, um, you're not going to get much out of it to help yourself. So just having to balance that a little bit. So, um, but yeah, appreciate your uh, question, Sean, uh, with my wife being from the South, uh, can just tell you that, uh, down home cooking, soul food related cooking, um, but also a lot of other creative stuff too. Uh, she's an, I mean this, an amazing cook. I am okay, but I know my place. And, uh, if we're talking who's leading the championship for life in that category, man, she, uh, I've got one point and she's got 5,000. So that's just a, a difference in talent without a doubt. Uh, Cody Oakwood. MP on the surface, it looks like the reduction in events, the Freedom 100, uh, the lights at the Brickyard, uh, Brickyard Invitational Weekend, etc., are for COVID-related cost savings. However, could it be an effort by Penske to create scarcity uh, that would drive higher attendance at fewer events? Do you think less is more is a better direction when it comes to major events at IMS? Uh, I think we're past that, Cody. I think the keep it special, keep it low, do the Brickyard, do the Indy 500, and that's kind of it. I know we've had F1 in the past, and there's been the Red Bull era. I realize that there's been select things, but really, for a long time, it was the Indy 500, Brickyard 400, and really not much else. I think we've gotten past the time where there was that sense of protective rarity and stuff scarcity and whatever you want to, might want to call it. I think we've been past that for quite some time. I don't fully grasp the direction they're taking. Yet another thing I need to try and get some insight from. Um, I don't get it. If you are facing a pretty stiff loss this year uh, due to the lack of ticket sales, concession sales, and everything else, my uninformed mind says, well, if you were to have more of those next year, and they were diverse things, right? Not like, hey, we're going to put on six IndyCar races on the road course. Uh, you know, you're going to have good attendance in the first two, maybe three, but uh, certainly not five, six, four, five, and six. If you can offer diversity of, of offerings that would have more people coming out, then I would think you would sell good number of seats and concessions and other things, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, you know, some of the items that I know that are coming off the list are track rentals. So again, maybe who knows, maybe the business behind that wasn't too favorable. Maybe there wasn't a significant profit margin to really say, Oh, we have to do this. I don't know, but it's a special place. Duh. Seemingly everybody wants to go there. Duh. Um, maybe they're going to announce some really cool things we don't know about, uh, to fill some of those dates. I don't know. I can tell you this is the first time in a long time where I truly have no real idea of what they're trying to do and where they're hoping to go with whatever it is that they're doing. So that doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong. It just means that this dummy is in particular kind of out in the woods uh, on this topic without any real anything to offer. Uh, Let's see. Why don't we go to our pal Jameen Tuttle? MP, when you look at the overall health of the series, which feels like it's in an upward uh, trend, what is the one realistic step you think could be taken to help solidify its future? Possibly not realistic, and it's expensive, but a series 
uh, along the lines of Formula Drive to Survive would be amazing for recruiting fans and raising awareness, plus a win for sponsors due to the exposure. I mean, that's been hovering there over the plate for a little while. Uh, my good pal, Mr. Tuttle, of the, boy, that F1 documentary type thing, reality thing on Netflix was amazing for F1. Uh, boy, wouldn't it be great if IndyCar did that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but uh, I've watched two seasons of Drive to Survive and haven't heard anything about IndyCar doing anything. Granted, I think I actually need to finish season two. I still need to do that. I was trying to ration those out during uh, the first couple months of the pandemic. So thanks for the unwitting reminder here, uh, Jameen. So would this help? Of course. The awareness gap for IndyCar is its greatest detriment right now. We all know about it. We all love it. We also know that if we were to try and form a convention for IndyCar fans, it's on. It's at the being hosted at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the infield. Um, we wouldn't be able to fill the infield. I don't know how full it would be, but I'm pretty confident in saying we would not be able to fill the infield. I don't know what the number is. You've heard me say, you've probably seen Robin write about it many times in his mailbag. We continue to estimate there's five to maybe 10,000. We're confident in five. Uh, He and I are always using the number five in in private conversation, but we're confident in saying there are 5,000 diehard IndyCar fans in the country and or planet folks who probably like you all and me wake up every morning looking for something to read about IndyCar or look at social media to see what an IndyCar team or driver is doing or saying, or in my case, crap to write about to give you that content you want to read. Maybe it's 10,000, but I think we'd have a hard time saying there's more than 10,000 people who every single day wake up every day and again i'm not saying there aren't 20 40 50 100 500,000 a million plus indycar fans that's not the thing it's the who truly lives and breathes this in the way that your friend who's the most rabid major league baseball fan uh fan happens to be where he or she wakes up every day and they're looking at whatever, whether it's uh, MLB.com or ESPN or wherever, like that's their kind of their thing in life. We estimate it's five to 10,000. And so with that in mind, are, are we going to create legions of new people who only live and breathe IndyCar? If there is a IndyCar Drive to Survive series on Netflix, I don't think so, at least immediately. But wow, the true issue here is awareness. We all know it's awesome. Not many others do by comparison to other bigger forms of racing, NASCAR, Formula One, um, and then all the stick and ball sports we can think of throughout the world. So yes, would this be a hugely influential thing that could hopefully have a small blip on the radar to start, but actually probably have a bigger effect in years to come as this becomes a a wider known, better known thing. Yes. I would say that would be amazing. Second thing I'll close on here in terms of ideas, Jameen, and I have mentioned this for, I don't know how long 
uh, 10 years plus, uh, written about it for 10 years plus, if and when IndyCar decides to truly connect with current and future technology firms. Could be automotive now that we have a, a rising number of pure EV, uh, electric vehicle manufacturers, but also Silicon Valley, whether it is electronics, whether it is automation, whether it is artificial intelligence, whether it is whatever, if and when IndyCar ever decides to become the series, because there's no other series that is doing this, to make trips to, I'm using air quotes when I'm saying Silicon Valley. I mean, it's right here. I'm staring out and looking at it. <laughs> it's right out my window. Uh, most of the people that live in the town we're in all live here and commute just right down the road, 10 minutes uh, to 20 minutes away to Silicon Valley, like Facebook, right across the bridge from me. We see it once or twice a month. I mean, it's sitting there right in front of us to the right. As we make a left, uh, instead of turning right onto one hacker way, you've, you've probably seen photos of people posing in front of that big Facebook sign with the thumb or whatever the hell it is. Like, you know, we're there a couple times a week staring at it as we're waiting to turn left to go uh, in towards Palo Alto of uh, Apple and Google and all these things driving past it on the way to the San Jose airport. All this stuff is here, but for whatever reason, IndyCar, which I think in this country is known as the highest tech fastest and or cutting edgiest type series has been that for a long time. You no, know, we could say IMSA as well. Um, but just why, why is there no effort to go and create relationships and explore new and interesting things technologically. Why? I have no idea. And so here's the cool thing. It's not just here in Northern California, right? Austin, Texas is also known uh, as a hub. It has a Silicon Valley of its own. Uh, you can head out east. Uh, you can head into the Carolinas. You can head to a lot of places where major tech hubs in this country are cropping up. Why isn't IndyCar? Jameen, I'm asking you, uh, why isn't IndyCar embracing this opportunity that it has to say, hey, okay, we're going to go hybrid, cool, that's going to make the auto manufacturers happy-ish, but boy, there's so much more we could be doing and engaging with these companies as a series, as teams, if we wrote the rules to create opportunities where teams could, as one of the questions we just had a few moments ago about electronics, could this be something where teams do not have to buy spec parts, as Tim Prollo was asking about? Uh, spec things from Cosworth, nothing against the fine folks from Cosworth, but spec dashes and data systems and whatnot, that does nothing for the teams. They pay money to have those things. Why aren't folks thinking about writing future rules that say, hey, go into Silicon Valley, go talk to Google, go talk to Samsung, talk to Apple, talk to whomever, wrap around displays, touchscreen displays in the cockpit, right? We've got this big freaking crazy aero screen. Boy, can you only imagine the kinds of things we might be able to do with screen technology and what could be projected onto it and just, again, open doors. No one's doing it. Nobody. How much money is in Silicon Valley here in Texas in the right why nope 
close the doors, give the teams no real opportunity to make real hardcore serious business relationships that are very potentially profitable. Um, we keep thinking small man. So not a surprise that we end up with small footprint. Uh, Brian Burrell, MP curious if the series goes after and tries to attract new owners, um, like businesses do with new clients. Do they call it past owners who've left the series, try and get IMSA, NASCAR, etc. owners to expand essentially how do you get more owners actively engaged to help grow the grid? Uh, says I'm very thankful for the number of entrants for next year, given the shit show that is 2020. We know how to do it, Brian, and it's exactly what you mentioned, outreach. I don't know if this, well, I can tell you this just because it's not sharing top secret stuff, but uh, I know that in past years prior to Penske's purchasing of the series and whatnot, that if I heard a whiff of someone in whatever series, could be sports cars, could be junior open wheel, could be wherever, uh, that was interested potentially in IndyCar, just, hey, curious about it maybe. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to do anything, but just want to learn about it. Uh, I'd try and get those people connected with Jay Fry immediately. And I know that Jay and or Mark Miles or whomever would explore those things. But I'd say as an, an initiative by the series, I don't know if it was an active thing where, you know, truly, how do we get more people in? I'm constantly on this agenda. I think that there's a stronger feel for that with uh, the Penske Entertainment Group. I just don't know to what degree. So just to follow up a little bit, uh, I know that I mentioned Jackie Heinricher and her interest in becoming an IndyCar entrant and trying to get her connected with some people to help. Uh, I do know that the series, after giving the series her info and a little bit of background just to help get them up to speed, uh, they did reach out. And I'm told that uh, the conversation was very, very good and very positive. So I'm hoping that'll keep going. But that's someone coming to them. Um, the actual effort by IndyCar to go and try and call and develop more, that's where I don't have a great understanding of if and what they might be trying to do, Brian. So I just need to find out. <laughs> and I do feel like I need to hit the pause button for a second here. So I do this for a living. Race car reporter, IndyCar, sports cars, that, those are my two specialties. I like to think I'm really good at what I do. I like, again, it's a thing I like to think. Not saying it's true, but I like to think I'm good at my job, you know, kind of not stuck in a box, kind of creative thinking and angles and whatever. Each week, I just need to bow my head and mention to you all that it's either great questions about things I would have never imagined and then say, geez, I really should go ask someone about that. Or something like this where it's just so obvious that I should have already been on the line to a RP or a Bud Denker or whomever to ask the same thing. Uh, how, what's the plan? Is there an agenda? How do you do it? Etc. I just want to pause and say, thank you. Because like I said, I, in my mind, I should be thinking all these things and already pursuing them. But, uh, each week y'all just give me a lot of great ideas of things, not only to answer on the show, but that I really should go and, uh, pursue for stories because if you're curious about them, I should be curious as well and delivering uh, answers. So thank you, Brian, and to many of you each week. Uh, Lori Carter. Hey, Lori, how you doing? MPO was watching the 2011 8500 the other day, and I completely forgot about the double file restarts. What were your thoughts on them? And do you think IndyCar will ever bring them back? 
I loved them because they were a bit chaotic. And as you might know, I'm a fan of chaos. <laughs> a word that as a child, I pronounced chaos, by the way, until uh, my parents heard me say that out loud for the first time in front of them, to which they said, chaos? What? Could you spell that? And I spelled out the word, and they said, uh, chaos. Uh, again, this is just one of the many times uh, during my childhood where my parents' father, stepmother, or just my mother uh, looked at themselves or looked at me with, uh, oh, this is going to be rough. Uh, so, anyways, um, chaos. I love it, Lori, and I thought that it just brought a a thrill for sure listening to the drivers talk about it i can tell you that they certainly had a different opinion so idiot like me looking at it going oh boy that's a little crazy that's going to shake things up and it wasn't just the new 500 they did that for what a year maybe two um drivers weren't necessarily in agreement that it was awesome and should continue mostly for the yeah if this goes wrong and i'm sure it did go wrong more than once but yeah the potential for bad things to happen here uh, it's higher than what we are comfortable with. So do I think we'll ever bring him back? No, absolutely don't. Um, during the Randy Bernard era, being a promoter and a, a showman, that's how he thought. To my knowledge, there are no showmen or show women in the current IndyCar administration to think of things like this, where you go, hey, it's an option. We can do whatever we want. What's going to be the most entertaining? Uh, I'm just unaware of anybody thinking like that when it comes to changes like hey let's go back to double file restarts or standing starts uh let's see all right we're gonna keep ripping here let me see where we're at uh, on the old clock hey rocky sorry buddy you're gonna have to wait pal love you dude but uh i'm gonna finish the show here before we get you some food dude um would you go away all right man He's such a persistent little SOB. Um, let's see. We're going to go to... I don't even know. Um, Bob Gravel. Have you heard anything about new teams joining IndyCar? Uh, other than the one that I mentioned about Jackie Heinricher? Hopefully, no, I have not. Um, Duncan Idaho says, Could a shift to road and street courses spur any more curiosity from f1 teams to try and come over like uh, air mclaren sp or mclaren joining air mclaren sp uh i mean i'm sure uh that more f1 teams might be interested but again it's kind of like saying hey if we took away the defining thing that makes our series could folks have a different reaction to it of course <laughs> Hey, if NASCAR took away ovals, do you think more IndyCar teams would consider doing it? Sure, if it was all road and street courses, but that wouldn't be NASCAR. So uh, you also said a guest request for Robin freaking Miller. Thanks, I've gotten a couple of those in the last month or two. Uh, Robin, like us, has been busy with uh, some personal, trying to tend to personal health stuff. And so his weeks have been pretty darn busy, and I certainly... Do not want to uh, put any pressure or stress on his time. Uh, so, been giving Robin a lot of uh, a lot of free space. So, when he is 
able to, I will certainly ask Duncan. It's just not going to be immediate by any means. Uh, let's see. Tire pressures from Charlie Mac C five on Twitter. How much flexibility do teams have with tire pressures or is it dictated by Firestone? Uh, is tire pre are tire pressures coveted information among teams? Uh, I better hear an answer. Damn it. Uh, well, there you go. Charlie Mac C five. Uh, no, Firestone does not dictone dictone. Sure. We'll go with it. Dictone. Huh. Uh, I think that was an X-rated punk band back in the day. The Dictones. Uh, Firestone does not dictate tire pressures. What they will do, though, is leading into each race, provide recommendations and guidelines. Hey, we would say that you probably don't want to go over this pressure, and you probably don't want to go under this pressure. If we're talking the ovals, especially the bigger and scarier ones, you will certainly get a little bit more direction from them. Hey, you absolutely do not want to go over this pressure. Uh, and also, we're seeing and thinking that this camber setting might be about as far as you want to go uh, before you start worrying about excessive wear that could lead to uh, an unfortunate outcome and reaction. So, there's that. As for tire pressure information, yes, extremely, I wouldn't say coveted, uh, protected. So, granted, most teams are running similar-ish setups, right? It's not like if we're talking St. Petersburg, one team was running 2,000-pound springs at the rear and another team was running 500-pound springs. I, I'm just using general numbers. You'd have, you're probably going to find some that are within a couple hundred pounds of one another at most, but not varying much. Probably not going to have huge differences in downforce, front and rear, the center of pressure and whatnot. Ride heights aren't going to be crazy different. Uh, you could have some suspension geometry differences, but I just mentioned this because it's not like one team is going to have, if we're talking St. Pete, which is primarily right-hand turns, uh, you're not going to have one team with a left front tire pressure of, let's say, 35 PSI with their setup and another team with a slightly different setup at 25 or 45. You're going to have a lot of teams that are in or around the same pressure, all depending upon how good they are at their starting tire pressures and uh, hitting that target. So, of course, there's a lot of variables to throw in, toe and camber and caster and a bunch of things, um, you know, anti-roll bars and springs and how much things are moving around to therefore affect the, uh, the tire pressure and... Uh, temperatures but yes even though teams are going to find out that they're all pretty darn close to the same thing they all guard this information like it is absolute nsa quadruple secret stuff uh let's see our pal ryan terps for mp i bring to you a question i don't wish to ask and yet ryan you do ask uh this has been hashed on the podcast before but did you see paul tracy's halloween costume he was a quote covid patient um, you then ask, is he out of the booth as soon as TK and or Hinch are ready to go and sign to NBC Sports full-time? Uh, I did see it. Um, I mean, look, Paul's brand of, of life is pushing as many buttons, being dickish, and being harsh 
often in the name of painting it as humor. Um, that's who he is. It's nothing new. It's well known. You know, no need to just repeat a lot of stuff. That's well known fact. Uh, love and warmth and humanity. Not necessarily his stock and trade, and yet he um, he will certainly reach out if someone has a problem. Um, give, you know, when I was you know getting hit hard a week or two ago with the stuff I was dealing with, you know, he I think it was social media, but just hey, uh, get well, hope you're doing you know whatever type thing. So. It's a weird thing, and I'm not, I don't think I'm sharing anything new here, but when I talk about pushing the limits and dickish and all those things, that's very much Paul's public persona. You will find behind the scenes that I'm not saying that it's an act, not saying that at all, but you will find that behind the scenes, there is a more caring version of Paul Tracy than he often or or, or traditionally or, or feels comfortable sharing. So that's a positive, just not one that, uh, again, maybe is seen as often as uh, it might be. But to your overarching question of did I see it, do I think others saw it, and do I think that him going as a COVID patient is the thing that takes him out of his career in the booth? No, I absolutely don't. Key thing to know is that the boss of bosses at NBC Sports, and I mean no one higher boss of bosses, is as pro Paul Tracy as you could ever hope for the biggest of big bosses to be. So if we are talking about air support, if we are talking about he's got a wingman who is in his court a thousand percent, that's what he's got. So do I foresee Paul not being in the NBC sports IndyCar or any other booth at any point in time in the near future. I do not. It would be a massive surprise if there were to be a change there. And I'm just saying this. You want to talk about a ride or die? Paul has got himself a ride or die, and that is the biggest of big bosses. And that, I think, is probably everybody's dream work scenario. Um all right, uh, I would say I got a little bit of time left, and then I got to go actually record another podcast. So let's see, where should we go to try and wrap things quickly here in five or ten minutes? Uh, I'm just going to scroll to the bottom of the remaining list. Again, we have almost three and a half hours worth of questions, so uh, we're definitely not going to be doing all three and a half for sure. Uh, okay. Joel Cram, what non-European drivers do you think wear a Speedo to the beach or pool? I'm more thinking under their race suit, Joel. That's uh, that's my first thought. I'd say Ferrucci for sure. Most of these things, Ferrucci's the answer. Uh, 
Uh, Kyle, HB Donnelly, Marshall, why do you think GM and Honda use their more basic brands, Chevy and Honda for IndyCar, and their luxury brands, Cadillac and Acura, in sports cars? Uh, well, I'd say for the reasons you just spelled out, IndyCar is reaching a wider audience. If we're talking competitive marketplaces, there are certainly going to be far more Chevys or Hondas sold than Cadillacs or Acuras. So if you were coming up with a marketing plan, my friend, you would say, well, the thing where we're going to sell more of, we would want to use our bigger scale performance racing involvement, that being IndyCar, to be the thing to try and showcase why what we're doing here is trickling down to make your average Chevy or Honda faster and better. And for the more niche thing of sports car racing, where there are lots of passionate fans, but just a much smaller number than IndyCar, and its TV ratings are much smaller, it's more of a come out, be at the race, and you know, be part of that lifestyle type thing. I mean, sports car racing is, I would say, is more of a lifestyle type racing series. Whereas, you know, you certainly a lot of folks go and cheer at NASCAR and IndyCar, but sports car is a little bit more of uh, an evangelical thing. If you love sports car racing, you're probably not sitting home on the couch watching all the races of the year. You're getting out and getting stuck in. You might very likely as well have one of the brands competing uh, in your average endurance race at home in the garage or that you drove to the track. So this is where a Cadillac competing in IndyCar, I think, would come across as just a bad fit. Folks would have too big of a bridge to cross to marry IndyCar performance to the Cadillac name. But performance sedans and, uh, you know, a supercar like Acura's NSX, uh, and such, those are a little bit easier to convert, I would say, to sports cars because they can either take the cars that they sell, like the NSX, and build it into a GT3-based race car that is on track at those IMSA WeatherTech Championship events. Uh, Cadillac did that with their sedans for a decade plus, and more recently they've moved into prototypes. So it's just a little bit easier of a sell to those who are you know, looking at more luxury, sport luxury brands to do that on the sports car side, it's a niche, definitely more niche than IndyCar. It's a niche form of racing, really appealing to a, a niche fan. And it makes more sense, Kyle, to have those niche brands like a Cadillac and Acura in front of those people. Uh, let's see. Okay, from Reddit. Is there a plan for treating the surface at Texas before the doubleheader next year? Uh, says, watching the NASCAR races there last week, it's apparent there's even more goopy stuff in the turns than in June. Great question. Don't know. Flagging it will pursue an answer. And I think I'm going to start doing that more and more uh, here with the show. If I was smarter and better, admittedly, if I had more mental bandwidth, I'd run through everyone's questions highlight all the ones where I don't have the immediate answer, go try and get them, and then wait a couple days. Granted, the show would probably never start before Thursday or Friday instead of trying to get at least the first listener Q&A done Monday night, Tuesday night. Um, but, yeah, I think I'm just going to start flagging some of these where I don't have an immediate answer and uh, either turn them into stories 
for the ones that deserve uh, such things or try and remember to bring them back and answer them in a future episode. Uh, this is one of them where it's a great question. I don't know. And if for those who might be wondering, well, I usually get the first round of questions Monday evening from our pal Tim. Uh, I try and then do them that night when I can. If I'm having to send off questions, which I do, I just don't send out a lot of questions to folks. It could be to Jay Fry, Kyle Novak, whomever. Uh, Sometimes I get an answer back within hours. Sometimes it's 24 hours. The last one I sent to Jay, I think from the first episode this week, so I would have sent that Monday. I still haven't heard back, and it's probably been forgotten. So anyways, that's the reason why getting all this stuff lined up before the show so I have uh, ready answers for you when we do the show doesn't always work out from a timeline standpoint, but, uh, yeah, going to try and shuffle things up and do it a little bit differently going forward. Uh, Garrick Obe, Obe, Obey. I'm sorry, Garrick. I am probably murdering your last name. Give me a little pronunciation guide. If you could with the next question recently, it seems like more drivers shuffled out of F1 are considering IndyCar as an option in the long term. Do you think this is a good thing for the series? Or is the influx of ex-F1 drivers keeping seats away from deserving road to Indy drivers? Well, so if we go back to that, hey, not a lot of people know about IndyCar. Um, We need to get more people knowing about it. Well, F1 drivers tend to be among the best known drivers in the world. So provided they aren't hated or they don't suck, I'd say a ex-F1 talent is probably going to put more potential interest on IndyCar than a young road to Indy driver in the short to medium term, at least. Um, other thing or two, just to throw in quickly, Garrick, in a rare instance, we get a Formula One driver who comes over of late and is paid to drive. Alexander Rossi, for example. Um, I mean, he brought a little tiny, you know, a little bit of sponsorship with him, but that wasn't the thing that got him to Andretti Autosport. Um, but you think of a Marcus Erickson, for example. Uh, he brings sponsorship. That's awesome. You think of Rubens Barrichello when he came over. He had some sponsors that followed him. Um, I'm, I'm probably forgetting some others. But this is more often a case these days of, hey, F1 driver, cool. Uh, could What money you got? Compared to, oh, and we're going to hire the F1 driver to be our person. So, Yeah. So the flip side, or maybe I shouldn't say the flip side, the exact side to this as well, Garrick, is when we're talking about seats, there aren't many being given. So it doesn't matter whether you are F1 or a deserving road to Indy driver. Uh, Given is really not the thing that happens on any kind of regular basis. It's who's paying for it. So the Oliver Askew situation at Aero McLaren SP, rarity. Right, He had that million dollars to bring from winning the Indy Lights Championship. Who knows if there was a little bit of other sponsorship as well. But the team picked up the tab for his season, by and large. Um, Colton Herta and Patricio O'Ward were both supposed to be paid to be IndyCar drivers under the Harding-Steinbrenner team uh, deal. Half of that went away with Pato. They were scraping pennies off the floor to pay for Colton's stuff to keep him going throughout the year. Uh, Mike Harding kept putting in money to the best that he could, and they were trying to find sponsors. But, I mean, it was a real, like, hope and a prayer deal, and thankfully it didn't fall through. But 
Joseph Newgarden, 2012, again, a bit of a rarity champ. Um, you know, so he's, he's a rarity in a team saying, yeah, we're going to take that guy and put him in a car and we believe in him. We're going to develop him or her. So that's where this just becomes a bit of a moot point. Unfortunately, Garrick, if I'm forgetting his name, I apologize. Romain. I keep wanting to calling him Romain Dumas, uh, Romain Grachon. If he can bring three to four million dollars, he will be an IndyCar driver in 2021. Period. If he cannot, he won't. If a road to Indy driver can bring four million ish, they might be an IndyCar driver. And if they can't, they won't. That's the state we're in. And that is a state, Garrick, until we have some of the veteran drivers retire and vacate some of those paying seats. So there you go. Uh, Let's see. I'm just going to... Elite Fleet from Reddit. You sent in one about fixing the current chassis. If you want me to answer that, fire that one back in for next week. Just make sure you say something acoustic up front so I uh, pay attention to it. Uh, Mark Taylor, you mentioned what if uh, IndyCar were to change Indy Lights formula to be fully electric. Um... Might it be a better PR initiative uh, than the late-to-the-game hybrid system? Um, might this be a way to ease the old-school fans to the idea of electrification? Um, and then you also mentioned, could it be a meaningful electric technology that will likely be necessary for IndyCar survival in the coming years? I mean, it's interesting. Uh, the problem with this, Mark, and it's a great idea. I, I, I can't, there's nothing neg- negative to say about it from a, a worthiness standpoint, but the one negative in terms of what would it, what would make it not work is for the kind of money that would be needed to be invested by electric, by EV type companies um, and vendors who make such things or trying to break into the marketplace. Indy lights has no promotions of any value. Uh, they're on NBC Gold streaming. I don't even know what the, the ratings numbers are, but they're just nothing. So unless this idea was married to EV manufacturers, and who knows, could it be a big one like a Tesla or a tiny one like a so-and-so? Um, unless there is some sort of significant marketing spend to lift Indy Lights from total marketing and awareness and streaming and TV uh, obscurity, uh, I'd say that this probably wouldn't be a starter. Uh, let's see. Dave England, did Darren Manning do that rare thing of just finish being a race car driver and then have another career that made him happy? Aside from turning up on the UK presentation of the Indy 500 a few years ago, it seems so, and I hope so. Well, he has been in the driver management thing. He is Dalton Kellett's manager, so that seems to make him happy. I believe he's on Dal- Dalton's podcast, or I-, I know that he calls it a podcast, but it's a video thing. Um, and it started as a video thing. So video cast or just talk show. I don't know what you want to call it, but, um, he seems to be pretty happy. Uh, and I've once remembered, uh, the other things that he did, but I've since forgotten. So I apologize. So danger mouse. I suck. Uh, EP Lindstrom. Hey there says, when do you think we'll see more super speedways added back to the schedule and which ovals will likely come back? Great question. Do I think there'll be more? I don't know if I would s- stick to super speedways. 
we don't have a lot that we would say are kind of IndyCar centric, right? A Michigan, a Fontana, which as we know we're gonna, is going to be getting a lot smaller here. Uh, a Pocono, I mean, that didn't really work out. Um, a Talladega, you know, I mean, there are some, but that's not really a place where Indy cars have really gone. Would they be welcome? I don't know. Um, I don't, you know, Michigan, I got to think might be one of the better odds of a true super speedway, but I think just more ovals in general, I would have to believe that in 2022, we will see at least two more come onto the schedule minimum one, but if not two, uh, I don't have an idea though, uh, EP, whether we're talking super speedway or if it's just one mile, one and a half mile, you name it. We know that Kentucky has mentioned an interest. I'm sure that there are some other tracks that have been, uh, kind of taken off of the NASCAR schedule that might be more open to trying to find some love with a, uh, with another series. Cause Hey, they all need income. So that might be the thing EP that opens up the door a little bit uh, in ways where it's been closed uh, in recent years for the tracks that ISC owned by NASCAR uh, happens to possess. Would they be open to having IndyCar at some of them? I don't know. Um, but could some of the other track owners be open? Possibly. I think that might be among the, the most interesting things that we hadn't expected to come out of this COVID thing, uh, economies in danger or crashing a little bit, I think that might be possibly a, a quote benefit. As weird as it is to say, EP, could some of the ovals that have just turned their back and said, "Nope, we're stock car, not indie car," could some of those that are no longer on the cup schedule or are you know lost maybe one of their two cup races, whatever it is. We know that their finances are not as strong as they once were. Could they now be a little more friendly to say, hey, so let's talk a little bit? I think so. I just don't know how many, and I don't know how soon that might benefit IndyCar. And, hey, there's news that we're going to name the place uh, that we haven't been either before or in a little while. All right, last couple here, and then we're done. Ron Thompson, any idea how long the Barrichello family plans to stay on the road to Indy? Um, he says, also remember Augie Papp saying how they watched, uh, parents at tests to see how they would interact with the team and others. He says, not referring to Rubens, but using that as a bit of an indicator. Uh, I don't know. I need, I'll reach out to Rubens and ask. So I flagged this one as well, Ron. Um, I know that they really enjoy being on the road to Indy. I mean, I've texted with Rubens a couple times this year, usually just to congratulate him, uh, when his son Eduardo, also known as doo-doo. Uh, has won. Uh, I haven't heard much about, oh, well, he, we're going to get him halfway up the road to Indy and then we're going to yank him over to Europe. If that's the plan, I don't know about it, but uh, I will reach out and ask. Okay, Curtis Cleveland. Hey, Marshall, what's a resale value of a used car? Heard about Meyershank Racing buying Dragon Speed's car. And I'm curious what the difference is to buying a new car compared to used. Um, I guess it depends what all comes with it. Uh, you know, I've heard and I, I should probably be more brushed up on this but you know 750 500 750 might be a little bit more uh closer than not but yet again uh something i'll try and get myself sharpened up on uh where else we're gonna go rob ball and jeff brown talking steering wheels mp with all the talk 
last few shows about steering wheels got me to thinking are the wheels used on all steps of the road indy as customizable as they are in any car or are they spec in order to keep costs down um i don't believe spec i uh, could be totally wrong but this is just an area that in general is open for customization in open wheel racing because you have smaller drivers bigger drivers some who if they don't have a custom wheel because of the length of their legs and having to pull them back to fit in the car will be hitting the wheel we have others uh, with longer arms, shorter arms, who want bigger steering wheels, uh, diameter or narrower for more leverage, less leverage, more space for arms, forearms and hands to move in the cockpit. Others, uh, maybe with smaller, can slide through, so therefore could have a bigger diameter. I mean, in general, this is something where you're, not going to see most racing series getting too grumpy about teams customizing to their driver's needs. Uh, Jeff Brown, B-R-O-W-N, not my engineering friend, Jeff Brown. Hey, MP, keep up all the good work. Well, thank you. I wasn't aware I was doing good work, but I appreciate the note. With the off-season upon us, do drivers have their teams 3D print a copy of their steering wheels for their iRacing sim rigs? Ah, that's a great question, Jeff. Not that I'm aware of. I... Of course, our friends at iRacing get really mad whenever I say or others say that uh, it's not identical uh, to the on-track experience. I'd say I haven't heard of a driver doing this. Maybe some have, but most of the drivers that I speak with who do a lot of sim racing at home realize that they're doing stuff, they're learning maybe, but they're not expecting the exact cockpit feel of what they have in their indie car. So therefore, they're not too wound up about having a steering wheel that is truly identical. Uh, Sean Lee, you have a great question, um, and you asked me to want to pick a lot of things uh, here. Hypothetical 33 drivers. Send this one back in, brother. Not going to be able to get to it today because it's going to take a while. Uh, so we're going to get to the last two questions. One, Tony Cotman. Uh, this is coming in from our pal Sean Starkey again. says, uh, hope you're well on the road to recovery. Can you please interview Tony Cotman about what it takes to design a track and or do an interview about uh, what is involved in converting a road course to oval configuration like IMS? Flagging this one, great idea. Don't know why I haven't had my pal Tony Cotman on as a guest for the week in IndyCar before, but we are certainly going to do this. Great idea. Uh, we're going to close here. Stuart Arith. How are you doing, Stuart? Uh, hey, Marshall. Uh, from... Back in full national lockdown over here in the UK. You said in a previous episode that you passed the details for the Dragon Speed chassis being for sale um, over to MSR. Um, and it's simple, like buying a secondhand car. You pay your money, take it away. Uh, is that what it's like, though? Uh, you just pick it up, throw it into a truck, and off you go. Do you get other equipment with it? What's that like? Um, so, awesome question. Truly negotiable. So here's a, uh, I know that with what Shank did, he, with the Dragon Speed chassis, I know that he also wanted to pick up some of Dragon Speed's dedicated IndyCar pit equipment. Uh, might be timing stand, fuel rig, and whatnot. Things that you, they wouldn't just readily roll onto a sports car pit lane. Um, so it all depends. Again, uh, this is just a bit of a, a, what the team needs and whether the people they're buying stuff from are wanting or willing to sell everything. And so, as I understand, Mike bought the majority of Dragon Speed's IndyCar equipment 
you know, from the car itself to the rest of the goodies to go with it. Uh, don't think you would have bought a truck. Um, but yeah, so there's that. Um, another thing, which is just a little bit of a sidebar funny bit. Most, many teams build their own pit equipment and there's a lot of pride that goes into it. There's also a lot of artisan skill. Some are better than others. And I know for sure, because I've done it, uh, when going to buy things from another team, uh, for whatever team I was working for, that you ask, oh, hey, by the way, you know, uh, do you have, you know, a this or that to get rid of as well? And they'll often say yes. And you go and either take a look or have photos sent. You look at it and go, uh, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> That's, it's going to cost us more to do a full renovation on this heap of whatever um, that was okay for you and you felt fine with, but yeah, no, that looks like ass. Uh, we're just going to either build our own or we're going to keep looking. So this is just why I mentioned Stuart that, yep, wanted the car. Uh, I believe all the Dragon Speed stuff, they tend to have really fine equipment, so that was not an issue, but there are certainly times where you go to get the car and you look at the equipment and you go, hey, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, actually, let's go ahead and uh, not do that part of the deal because, uh, um, yeah, uh, oops, forgot we already had one. Uh, let's see. You also say, small second question you may have already answered, um, but I didn't hear how the Michael Shank car ran your wife's uh, support sticker for the Indy 500 uh, says it was a great sentiment on all sides, but I was just curious. All the best to wife, your wife and you, and hope the antibiotics uh, have you on the mend. Well, thank you, man. Uh, yeah, did uh, mention that in a past episode, but I think I can mention it quickly here. Uh, a fan of Meyer Shank Racing, who lives in the greater Columbus area near where the team is based, apparently just rocked up at the shop one day, asked to see Mike, and sat down and said, hey, uh, I'm a fan of yours. I love this team. I love it when you're on Marshall's podcast, and I like the podcast as well. Uh, have heard about his wife's ongoing fight against breast cancer and would like to know if I, what it would cost to sponsor something to put his wife's support sticker on the car just out of gratitude and being an amazing person, I have to admit. Um, and this was meant to be for the mid Ohio race, uh, before it was rescheduled. And so Mike said, yeah, man, you bet. But instead of you giving us money, uh, in exchange for that space on the car, why don't we just donate that to their, uh, to the medical expenses, um, uh, fund there. And that's what they did. And so not only did this gentleman, uh, write a check to Mike, uh, but the team also uh, kind of contributed to that as well, and they made a very immensely helpful donation out of nowhere. I mean, truly, just like, what? It's incredible. And so the gentleman who did this, I don't know his name, he asked to remain anonymous, also asked if he could place his family's crest uh, alongside my wife's uh, support sticker, and that's indeed what they did. But Mike Shank, being Mike Shank, said, well, this was meant to run at our home race, hometown, home state, home everything kind of deal um, with this home state fan. But since this got moved to September, well, the next race up is the Indy 500. So why don't we do it there? And that's where it was just, I was totally blown away. And so Mike 
being Mike, did that there and then kept it on the car uh, through what? I think uh, Gateway, and I don't know if it stayed on any, I don't I apologize, I don't remember if it stayed on longer than that, but it's just one of those things that's amazing. And it, it meant so much to my wife, and she was an instant Jack Harvey fan, rooting for him in every race since. How's Jack doing? Ready to qualify? What's going, you know? And so it's just, it's really sweet. So uh thanked Mike um, uh, again and again and again and again and uh, asked him to pass it on to the amazing listener. Hopefully you're listening now. Um, it's just such an incredible thing. The little epilogue, post-log, post-something to all this is one of my oldest friends, Matt Swan, went to work for Mike uh, for this season, and I just sent him a note and said, I don't know how this was done, if it was just a sticker placed on the car or if it was a wrap or a what, but whenever it's time to take them off, could you try and save those stickers? Cause I'd love to have them and have them framed for my wife. And I had a couple of photographer friends send me some nice photos of the car, either on pit lane or on track where her sticker is, is readily shown. And he did. He uh, was able to peel them, and they've got rubber marks from you know tire uh, tires hitting the stickers and the side of the car and such. And uh, so, yeah, so that's something that uh, I need to find out what it's going to cost, and then probably sell a body part. But uh, going to get that done here, hopefully sometime soon, and get that framed. So pretty cool stuff, right? I mean, how many to go through fighting the things my wife is fighting. You hope that never happens to anyone in life. But if you do have to fight it and folks think about you and try and do things to show support, not just saying that kind words and prayers aren't as valuable, but doing something demonstrative out of nowhere like this to try and uplift someone. Uh, that's just phenomenal. It really is. So thank you to you, whomever you are, who I hope to meet one day. Hope you might identify yourself whenever you feel comfortable. Uh, to Michael Shank, to their whole team. It's just nuts. Just totally nuts. And it meant so much to my wife to think that a car at the Indianapolis 500 raced and raced well uh, with my wife's name on it. Um, that's just the best in the world. So that's the show we got for you this week uh really do appreciate you we went a little bit beyond the two hours that i expected but hey uh, love you guys and the stuff you send in so i want to try and get to it i am marshall pruitt this is our week in indycar listener q a part two brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com and bell racing helmets usa speak to you next week